Well, welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach of TopFunky.com. It's been a little while, but we have a great show for you today and a bunch of great shows lined up. We're going to be mixing it up a little bit. Scott Barron has been promoted to the Rails core team and is also working on a book. So I'm taking over and also Matt Pelletier of East Media in New York City will be doing some podcast as well. We have a stellar array of guests lined up. We are appending to that array all the time. We want to cover a broader range of topics, sometimes technical, sometimes dramatic. Some of the people that you will hear on this show in the next few weeks include Chad Fowler, who recently wrote a book about marketing yourself and staying employed. Ionist, you might know their blog, Projectionist. Also, the entire audio development team should be very exciting. And, of course, many other guests, too famous to even name, so you'll have to tune in. Also, we have a new website coming up soon. By the time you hear this, uh, you should see that. And the engine behind that will be open source. And, of course, a rocking soundtrack featuring the Thirsty Cups. But today we are speaking with Amy Hoy also known online as Airy Berry. You may know her from her article, Really Getting Started with Rails, which was quite popular back in January when a lot of hype started ramping up about Rails. And she also made quite a few cheat sheets that look good and let you see simply and graphically how the different parts of Rails fit together. Recently, she spoke about usability at a conference for some kind of personal homepage language whose initials I can't exactly remember, but she's a unique developer who not only has great technical insights, but can make web apps look well and work well also. So welcome to the show. Thank you. First, we will try to get something straight because some may have been confused about it in uh, really getting started with Rails. You said you were going to try to learn Rails, which without learning regular old non-frameworked Ruby first, and at least I, I think you were immortalized in a song by Why the Lucky Stiff at the Free OSCON a few months ago. I assume that in the meantime, you've learned Ruby, and I've even some, seen some great things that you've written with Ruby. But uh, how possible is that? How far did you get with Rails before you felt like, hey, I really need to? to learn a lot more about Ruby. Well, my plan wasn't to ignore learning Ruby. It was trying to do two things at once. And I felt that because of my previous programming experience that I could probably manage that. And I think it's definitely been the case. Um, once you get past just customizing the scaffolding and doing your basic CRUD operations, when you start wanna getting, you just want to start to get fancy, and um, especially with like uh, 
hasn't belonged to many relationships. You need to at least get into like the array operators and so on to uh, do that effectively without creating a whole mess of extra code. So once you start writing your own helpers and that sort of thing, I did it for some tags. Um, you really do have to get throw yourself into it, or you're just not going to have any idea what you're doing or how to do it. So I think it's I think it's worked well. I I find learning things with project to be better. I absorb it better, have more attention. Well, and Ruby is great just because it seems to strike that a nice balance between being very readable and yet also powerful, letting you do a lot of things. Sometimes I'll start sketching down some ideas for a little script or something, and then when I'm ready to actually write it, I feel like it's half written already. But you're right, you did, there are a few more technicalities and a whole, a whole world of capability that you have to learn. Yeah, I, I really have come to admire the beauty of Ruby, and um, most of my programming experience lies in languages no one uses anymore, like BASIC. That's where I got my start. <laughs> a little bit of C and a little bit of Perl, and, but mostly PHP. And of all the good things you can say about PHP, I don't think anyone's going to call it elegant. Ruby feels like a well-designed tool, and PHP definitely does not. And that seems to be something that you value quite a bit. You uh, blogged about that recently with the prototype library being well-designed and even a few other things. To tell us about those. Why do you, uh, what was obvious to you or jumped out about the the good design of those other uh, frameworks? Well, um, the good design I was referencing was only prototype. I was comparing it to uh, other PHP-based solutions, whereas prototype is pure JavaScript, um, which did not stack up, I thought. Um, I was working on some Ajax uh, wrappers, so on, for uh, Ning, and I coded a uh, an Ajax wrapper for prototype, and even though I already knew how to use prototype, it's just so, it's consistent to itself. It has a definite orderly syntax, even despite the fact, you know, it's JavaScript. And it doesn't tell you how your application has to be ordered. The other two uh, Ajax frameworks that they wanted me to support and write documentation for, uh, Sajax, which is available in many languages, including PHP, and JPSpan, which is PHP only, um, they made they forced you to make editorial decisions as to how your program was structured. Um, they both relied on binding methods or classes to the uh, the core functionality of those frameworks. And so, if your application wasn't structured that way, you were kind of out of luck. And I really didn't like that at all. I felt like uh, the prototype was had the right idea with making it the least amount of change that you had to make to your application to make it work. And I think that's important because it I don't think that any piece of software I might want to integrate into my site, especially like another layer like Ajax layer, it shouldn't dictate how the rest of my code ought to be. It seems to in the Ruby community there is a very low level of tolerance for things that are awkward or poorly designed. Even one of the lectures was about open URI library, and even within Ruby, there was NetHttp, which many people use very 
functional, but OpenUI developer wanted to just make it even easier to where things were consistent, things were required as few method calls as possible, all kinds of things. I mean, that, that's for me, that's one thing I love about the Ruby community is that they're just not going to spend time messing around with all these things that aren't, aren't well-designed. Yeah, um, I'm definitely no heavyweight in the Ruby community. Um, I'm not an expert on it by any stretch, really. I'll be honest here. Um, I'm just a very enthusiastic amateur. And you definitely are right about that. I think that part of it is because Ruby itself is just so good that it it lowers people's tolerance for bad code, I think. And that's not generally the case you see with PHP, um, just about everything you can find in PHP. I mean, there's definitely plenty of good PHP code. It's just hard to find because the level, the tolerance level is so much lower because the barrier to entry is so much lower and the language itself doesn't have like an aesthetic, I would say. It doesn't have a unified feel the way Ruby does. Well, continue with that thought, we probably have a lot of people listening to this who are maybe wanting to learn about Ruby, learning about Rails, and a lot of those people come from PHP. As someone who's very familiar with PHP, what were some of the hard things to learn about Ruby or about Rails in general that you had to get over before you felt like you were comfortable with it? Well, to speak about Rails specifically, um, I hadn't really enjoyed using any of the PHP frameworks. I've tried out a few, for example, Mojave. Um, and they, they just seemed to get in the way more than anything else. Um, one piece of software that I used quite a bit and frankly regret um, is the Mambo CMS, which implements a kind of basic framework also. And it seems like um, the PHP frameworks really they get in your way, so very few people seem to use them. So learning a framework, you have to get in there, and at least for me, I needed to understand what was going on behind the scenes to get a real mental model of what was going on when you know I made a page request, where the connectivity between the models and the controllers and such was happening before I could really feel comfortable. But I'm kind of paranoid about knowing, not knowing what I'm doing, so I tend to dive in all the way before I come back and start to actually do the practical side of things. Um, and as far as Ruby goes, um, I didn't. I wouldn't say that I've had a hard time learning it at all, really. The hardest thing for me to grasp was blocks. Um, no language that I'd used really has uh, closures, blocks in it. Uh, not really a Lisp programmer, as you probably guessed. But I believe that for people who are PHP developers and less familiar with, um, you know, intensive object-orientedness are probably going to have a higher difficulty level in adapting to Ruby where everything is an object. And at first, you know, the easy stuff is like five dot times do this. That stuff's easy. It's a little harder when you get into sure. more complicated things like method overloading and operator overloading and that sort of thing. A lot of that, you know, the first time I heard about Ruby was maybe in 2000 and people were amazed at, oh, I can do, you know, the number one dot times or something like that. You know, it's so object-oriented that I can even operate on just bare integers. And, and I thought, well, you know, that's interesting, but it's what would I really do with that? But then now that I'm getting into it, it's great to take advantage of those things like the time extensions 
five dot minutes dot ago or five dot days hence or all those kinds of things are pretty cool. Yeah, the um, just the sheer amount of stuff in the standard library. It's just accumulate. It's not something that's difficult to pick up from another language, I guess. It's just more like it just takes time. And um, but it is pretty incredible. Although I have to say that despite the beauty of the time uh, class, it does seem like it's not got quite the range of function as PHP's various date functions. And that is the only thing I think that I would say PHP does a bit better. But it doesn't do it in a cleaner way. There's just more of it. Okay. I know, I think Lucas Carlson wrote a little bit recently about that, trying to kind of re rework those time functions and see if he could come with a, come up with something that made a little bit more sense, at least for pure Ruby. Oh, I I think I must have missed that, so I'm going to have to go look that up now. I've taken uh, two classes in Java, and I can't say that I really enjoyed it. It did teach me a lot about more pure object models than, for example, PHP has had. And even in PHP 5, it's not quite up there with Java and Ruby, obviously. But getting into Ruby and getting into Ruby on Rails, also because of that tendency for me to dive into everything as much as I can, I've learned so much more about design patterns, and I've learned about good API design. I love some of the uh, conventions that Ruby has, like the exists and the exists type method with you know the question mark on it returns a boolean, and if a method has an exclamation in it, it actually changes the object that it, you're running it on, and so on. And it really made the idea the concept of sending of method calls being messages sent to objects, it really made it clear because its syntax is just so simple. I thought, oh, hey, I just clicked, which was great. And I also think that once you get into learning Ruby, it's just so many other programming practices just start to make so much more sense because it's a language that, that makes it easy and makes it painless. That is great. I know that a couple of people mentioned maybe when they started to get into Ruby was because they heard the suggestion that you should learn one programming language a year just so that whatever you're doing, you'll learn to think in a different way and maybe in, incorporate those ideas into other things that you do in any language. For me, testing is a big thing. Of course, a lot of frameworks don't even have testing built in or you have to really go around. But here in Seattle, Ryan Davis, Eric Hodel are very much into thorough, thorough testing and that's something I need to learn a lot more about. That one can be a hard thing to wrap your head around at first. I understood, hey, let's run tests. It can test our code without us doing it over and over. And I'm not sure why I'm saying us, because it's just me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but the actual writing the assertions, and that took, that took a bit of a time, uh, a bit of a while for me to really have it click. I can go and write the code, but it just wasn't, meshing wasn't the eureka moment but that is also another great practice that ruby on rails specifically encourages which is great we're getting a little technical here this may be difficult to talk about on a audio show but in the last few weeks it's been kind of a debate matt's has been looking at different ways to extend and enhance ruby for version 2.0 whether that shows up in a year or how long how far out it is and one of those would, was going to be the block parameters. Right now we have the goalposts where you can say comments.each and goalpost comment, and then you can do something with that inside of a block. 
and he was going to extend it to where you could set some defaults. I did find that with a caret, a slash, a colon, an arrow. Have you looked at any of those? What would you like to? I saw that slide. Give your opinion. I think I saw the slide that you're talking about. I haven't had a chance to catch up on all of the RubyConf writings, although I'm insanely jealous of everyone who made it there. Was he talking about blocks in period, or was he also talking, or was that for Lambda, if I'm saying that right, Lambda function definitions? Yeah, Lambda Lambda would, uh, functions were definitely okay. part of it. Well, I I know that someone... And I, and I cannot for the life of me remember who. It's someone whose name most people probably know. It may have been Scott Barron or someone else of, of his caliber who was saying that the using the def uh, keyword, I guess it is, the def keyword without a function name and then just proceeding with the argument list and then the code in a block um, was great. And I have to agree that that follow, follows along with anonymous inner functions that you have like in Java and JavaScript. And I think that makes sense. I think it makes it really clear what's going on. But I'm not really sure if I want to be doing that and say my four block or, you know, four, you know, five dot times do kind of thing. Or, you know, the each method for enumerables. I'm not sure I want to put have to put def in there. So I'm kind of on the fence. I like the current syntax for blocks. I'm not so fond of the current syntax for the Lambda functions, although I haven't really had much of an opportunity to use those, I have to admit. It's all theory for me. So it's kind of a non-answer, isn't it? Well, that that works. Actually, talking about it, I may have it mixed up exactly where that applies. I I think it was the Lambda, but I only glanced at at it during my lunch break. Moving along, in your presentation at... PHP works. You talked a lot about usability. You posted some slides on your blog, which I thought were very relevant, and I need to go through those again and look about a lot of the things that you talked about there. Tell us a little bit about how you approach usability. Definitely with Rails, we want to make our web apps useful for a whole variety of people. Do you like to start with something that's already there, or do you just start with a blank sheet of paper or a blank screen and start sketching things out? How do you go about thinking about making a website very usable? Well, now keep keep in mind that I've used this mostly on fairly small projects. So it, the needs are probably going to vary if you're working for a giant corporation on this giant project. Um, but what I tend to like to do is, I, um, well, 37 Signals has the line of no functional spec, you know, write up a couple little user stories and then make your interface and that'll be your functional spec. I think that's going a bit far for me, but what I like to do is sit down and do sort of um, not a sketch exactly, but actually kind of a mind map of the kinds of things I want to the interface to do. I don't sit down generally with a long list of, well, user can do this, user can do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Interface will have blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd like to try to brainstorm all the things that someone would reasonably want to do and cool stuff. And I have this, you know, loose idea of the kinds of things that the interface should have. Now, this crosses over into actual application features. Um, So that may not work for everyone. It depends on the level of separation you have in the teams working on the website. But for small teams, it definitely does work. 
And then once I have an idea of what those features may be, I just noodle around in Photoshop, basically. And sometimes while I'm noodling around in Photoshop, um, I come up with further interface ideas because it makes sense that, hey, when you're on this page, you should be able to access this other function because, you know, it's something the user's probably going to do on a frequent basis or, you know, these little tidbits of information about the account here, that sort of thing. It's very much um, trial and error. I like to just get as many ideas out there and then start to thin the herd, if that makes sense. There is something nice about just just putting putting something together, starting to use it, whether it's in Photoshop or in the browser, and then saying, hey, this is great, but I'll tweak this or that there, and it'll be a lot better. You, you definitely see tweakage going on once you take it from Photoshop to HTML and actually start to use it. If you try to keep a, a fresh mind about it and find yourself going for some button or something that's not there. Is there anything in particular with the Scriptaculous libraries that just makes you say, hey, this is fantastic, I've wanted to do this kind of thing, and, and I'm going to use this feature that's going to make my websites a lot easier to use? Well, I definitely appreciate their controls. The drag-and-drop, the sortables. Um, I haven't used the sliders yet, but I think it's great that they make that kind of really fancy stuff available to people who aren't generally really fancy. <laughs> it makes it easy, and I just think that's really, really great. And part of that is because of the prototype library, and part of that is definitely because everyone working on Scriptaculous is committed to bringing cool stuff to the common people, as we may be. And, But I think what really is undervalued are the very subtle effects um, especially when you're using Ajax stuff. I think that the classic you know, yellow fade technique kind of thing, just the highlight items is important. And I think the ability to make um, hidden divs appear, whether it's slide out or what have you, when you're working with a form, I think that adds an important level of interactivity which can make the, the form, the, for example, more customized to the user it can make things closer at hand without cluttering up the interface, and I think that's very, very useful. One thing I think it's great about those, which honestly is not very Web 2.0 at all, is just showing little progress bars, little spinners, whatever, when some kind of action is happening. I'm trying to even work into that to my non-Ajaxed apps because we've got different kinds of progress bars in the browser, but people don't often pay attention to the top right of the screen or the bottom left and or I guess the bottom right and having it just right there in the form, pop up a little spinner, gives people a lot more feedback on what's happening. I definitely agree with you. Um, there are a bunch of scientific rules in uh, interface design as well as the aesthetic guidelines, and one of them is you can only wait some tiny fraction of a second, something like 100 milliseconds or something before showing some kind of progress or people will get twitchy and start clicking other things. So that kind of progress is, I think, definitely a valuable tool. And again, they make it really easy, especially on the Ajax stuff. It's just one more little line in your JavaScript or Ruby on Rails helper, as it may be. 
that's an interesting concept. For the last couple of years, I worked at a elementary international elementary school in Taiwan, and it was fascinating to look at the kindergartners and the amount of time that they thought something should happen in before they would click again. And I, I think most of the time it was under a second. You know, they would double click, and if if they didn't see something immediately, then they double click again, which is a pretty high, pretty high standard for. Yeah. A responsive app. Well, I, I think that when people become adults, that they understand that other signs of progress, you know, should indicate they shouldn't click again. But uh, yeah, there's some sort of law, and I do not obviously remember the number offhand. That if you do not see some kind of result, whether it's a progress meter that's obvious or you know the actual result you're looking for, within some tiny fraction of a second the events actually start to become sort of dissociated in your mind. You don't think necessarily that one caused the other. Directly, anyway. And even the non-time-based feedbacks, I guess, now that we have a lot of things, I, I felt like I have to pay more attention to using style sheets as far as, you know, turning the cursor into a hand in a cross-platform way and that kind of thing. I was using a major website, I won't name it, but their menus were just completely JavaScript and they only did the Internet Explorer cursor switch and my wife was using it and she was like, you know, why can't I click on any of these links? And for whatever reason, they hadn't even thought about that or or didn't feel like it was a value. Yeah, it's the little things that'll get you, the little things that are really easy to overlook like that. So it's definitely an attention to detail kind of job. And because you have to give the people context and stuff that they don't even think about if it's missing will throw them off. So that's one of the reasons, um, one of my slides is that you have to serve as an editor for what users tell you they want because they don't know everything they want. A lot of it's just below the conscious level. Just that. Okay, so there's a level of interpretation where you have to figure out what they really want or what they're trying to say. Yeah, um, one of the things that you learn in an intro to human-computer interface class or an intro to marketing class or an intro to like product development type thing, anything where you're learning about providing stuff to the consumer, whether they'll be using it or buying it, is that you can't just ask them what they want and then do it. Um, their desires they have that they can't, don't know they have, or desires that aren't there yet because there's nothing that's filled them before. And then there are so many things that the user is not going to be able to consciously say they want because they don't know they want it. It's kind of like, you know, I'll know it when I see it. But uh, we all like to think that we're perfectly cognizant of what we want, and it's not true for any of us in user interface or just in life in general, it seems. That's profound. <laughs> no, it's not. Sure. <laughs> I'm overreaching just a bit, perhaps. <laughs> well, moving along to maybe more specifically or non-specifically Rails-related top topics, last couple of weeks... Ning has descended upon the world, and a lot of people are pretty excited about it. Tell us what you can, because I think you've been involved with that somewhat. Is it going to wipe out Rails? You know, a year from now, are we going to say, "What was Rails?" Or 
does it target a different market of developers? Well, I was involved with Ning, and I still am. Um, the company that I work for, Omni TI in Columbia, Maryland, uh, contra- we're contracted to uh, provide a number of services, mostly code, various relate code-related things, helping do some QA and docs and that sort of stuff. And um, I wrote a number of the API wrappers. I wrote a couple of the example apps. Um, and by that, I'm example applications to show off the Ning system. And it's not going to kill Rails. It's a completely different kind of creature. It's not really about the framework itself, I think. Everyone says Ning is really about X, and X is always different from person to person, it seems. But, um, well, first, Ning is predominantly in PHP. Uh, They say that in their FAQ, their FAQ, that other languages are probably in the works. Um, I couldn't say one way or the other. I don't know. Um, I'm hoping, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, but the framework is not, it's not so much about handling all the stuff for you. It's, it's about making social application development easier. And it does that by creating this shared environment, which is a shared hosting environment, essentially, where the data from most applications is available to most other applications. And I think that it's the data, the openness of the data here, that is the serious strength of Ning. But Rails is not good for just developing social applications. And there are lots of things that Rails does make easier, which Ning does not at this point may in the future. but Rails is for application development, plain and simple, whereas Ning is for this very specific kind of application, and you have to be willing to host your service or your website online and to promote the community that they're ca- trying to create. It's The idea is that you open your data as well. You don't have to, of course. But they're trying to create sort of a social networking social application uh, ecosystem, almost. And if you're not doing a social application, it doesn't really make sense. And by social application, there's things like bookmark sites and photo sharing sites and classified sites and all sorts of stuff. Which are definitely huge. Definitely. And seem like it's going to be a big part of a variety of web experiences using that network, social interaction, all that kind of thing. Yeah, but I don't really see that Ning as a company and then Rails as an open source framework. I don't see that they're really in competition except for perhaps for a very small subset where there's some crossover. All right, well, tell us about your book. You are, are writing or are going to be writing... A book, some of which I'm sure is top secret until it comes out, but give us a little plug. What's what's it going to be about? Why should we buy it in a few weeks, months, or years when it's ready? Well, I hope it's not years. <laughs> okay. I'm hoping. Uh, <laughs> but um, I am writing a book for pragmatic programmers. Uh, it is a Rails book. Um, I'm not sure if we've actually finalized the title yet, but... Uh, 
the working title for now is Ruby on Rails, Right Brain Guide. It's essentially going to be a book-length work that follows the same kind of writing and instructional style of my um, earliest Rails articles, and I have some new ones that are along the same lines as well. Um, and it's aimed at people like me who have a hard time putting it all together from the API docs and from the more left-brain-oriented programming guides. Now, the Agile web development book is great, but it doesn't... It, I think that there is room for them both, and obviously the Pragmatic Programmer's Guide, Dave specifically, agrees, or he wouldn't have you know, agreed with me to publish the book. But it's for the people of, among us who are graphically oriented or visually oriented, um, hopefully like to laugh when they're reading a technical book. That won't appeal to everybody, I know. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I have a, a little one-act play in there that describes a certain web process, so if, if you don't like silly things, you're not going to like my book. But I wrote it, I'm writing it in the hopes that it'll entertain while educating, and gosh, I sound like an after-school special. <laughs> but if you like my articles, you'll probably like the book. And that's what I'm banking on, and that's why I'm hoping people will buy it. Will there be any cartoon foxes? No cartoon there? foxes. And thus okay. far, there are no references to bacon of any kind. I'm sure it'll still be a good I book. I hope so. Uh, I I love Y. He is inimitable. <laughs> He is truly a character. My writing is a little bit more sane than his, which is not always a good thing. As much as I love the poignant guide, I had to stop and take a breather several times. <laughs> it was a bit much. Well, there's room for all of that. It's great. I didn't realize you were writing for the Pragmatic Programmers. That's great. It's you know, If I was going to find someone, if they were going to learn Rails, I'd tell them to buy the book. It's it's great, but so many things have happened even since then that aren't in it. Migrations, Switch Tower, a bunch of these other things, which are pretty great. So will you be touching on on some of those things, or do you think they'll put a lot of that in version 2.0 of, of Agile Web Development? I'm not entirely sure what among those things we'll cover. I probably won't be covering um, Switch Tower, but I may. I definitely want to make sure that migrations are covered because that's something that just about every Rails developer can use. I think Switch Tower is possibly more advanced, technically speaking, than I necessarily want to get into. And sometimes when I find myself writing about that sort of thing, I just end up being dry and boring. So that might be part of it as well. I think that for advanced technical stuff such as Switch Tower, I may leave that to the tech gurus. I want to make sure that anyone who wants to then go and learn from the API docs or learn from the tech gurus that they can understand, they really, really get it. They really get the base stuff. They really get how Rails works so that they can then absorb that later because I think that that's the important thing on the bottom line is that true base understanding. And then you can feel comfortable enough to learn from the more technical writing. At least that's the way it is for me. Well, that's great. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And we'll probably have you back here when that comes out. We can hear all the details. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for showing up on the program today. I actually had people lined up for the past four weeks, and the podcasting gods were against me. 
even tonight, what your power yeah, went out today no before reason. this happened, but we conquered them. Just our them building. <laughs> and, and it's happening. All right. So it's back. It's just our building that uh, I have no idea why. Apparently this morning, half of our apartment had no power, but I didn't notice this. <laughs> I didn't notice it at all. <laughs> yeah. So I, I finally managed to break your uh, your losing streak, I guess. Well, thank you. It will continue on here from here and like i say we have a lot great list of guests coming up from the exotic to the brilliant to everything in between so thank you for listening it's been the ruby on rails podcast we'll see you next time Chunky bag, 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 chunky